This is Michael Easley in Context. To understand this Christ, all we have to do is look at his words and his works. More importantly, to understand God, all we have to do is look at his words and his works of his son. Christmas is everywhere, shopping malls, even on the radio. You know, we hear a lot in the media about Christmas being vilified, about we can't say Merry Christmas, and yet music plays, and it plays in department stores, it plays underneath a lot of things, whether it's a radio broadcast or a television special. We hear a lot of Christian, patently Christian music um, that's used for these specials. But do the men and women who produce and sing and perform these, do they understand, do they embrace the lyric, do they embrace the story, or is it just packaged in this holiday, winter, Christmas kind of genre that we all use this time of year? And we've been listening to the pentatonics version of Mary Did You Know. Not sure uh, what they think about the lyrics that they're singing, but as you and I approach this season and we look at a passage in Colossians in two parts about the firstborn of all creation, who is this Jesus Christ? Normally we think of the birth narratives this time of year, but I'd like you to think a little bit deeper and to think about who this incomparable Christ is. Let's look to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. After the 9-11 incident, Cindy and I, our family, were living in the Washington, D.C., northern Virginia area. And the day of that, of course, we all remember where we were. We were right across the street from an Afghan mosque, our church was situated, and we had a a relationship with the mosque of a sort. We had had meals with the imam and some of his leaders on a number of occasions. We'd broken bread with them and reached out to them in friendship. On Friday afternoons, our church parking lot in Northern Virginia looked like a cab depot because all the Muslim men would park their cabs in our church parking lot and walk across the street to the mosque because they didn't have any parking spaces. So we had carried on this relationship with them, and after the 9-11 incident, police cars surrounded the mosque, both protecting them and us, if you will. Began a difficult relationship as we went forward, knowing how to process through all of that. A few days later, the media swarmed the mosque, and as uh, media representatives came around, both Red Cross, the police station, uh, police officers, and so forth, uh, talking to the public through media about the mosque and how we were going forward as friends and neighbors and so forth was a a difficult time. The imam sent uh, one of his men over to find me at the church and said, would you come and speak before the cameras, which I did not want to do. And he persuaded me, and I went over and stood in the shadows of the fence line. In the parking lot, there were, oh, several hundred people. Of course, we couldn't enter the mosque, so we sat in chairs in the the, uh, parking lot. They had a little small parking area there. 
I listened to speaker after speaker talk about what the Red Cross was doing, what the police were doing, and so forth, and some of the other media spokesmen and women. And then the imam got up and gave the traditional Islamic blessing and the one true God, Allah, and his only prophet, Muhammad, and on and on. And the group responded, obviously, quite well to his remarks. And then I was motioned to come up. So I walked up, and I don't know what you would say, and I'm not a media guru by any stretch, uh, but I went up and I looked at this audience. Many of them I had come to know, and half the population in that parking lot were folks from our church. And I said, the same government that affords your imam the freedom to give the traditional Islamic blessing is the same government that affords me the freedom to say that Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I went on to talk about the imam and I breaking bread and having a friendship of a kind and that we would continue to be friends. We would continue to be neighbors because in our government, in our land, in our great country, we have this freedom to express our religious beliefs without fear of persecution. Well, my remarks were not well received. It was as if though I had thrown a hot water blanket over the whole thing. And the anger and pushback was very evident. As I went on to try to say, we will be neighbors, but we won't agree on what we believe. And that's still okay because we have a country that affords us that privilege. Whether there's a war on Christmas or not, I will leave for you to decide whether there's a, uh, a sense that we can't say Merry Christmas and you've got to say Happy Winter Solstice or whatever you want to say. <laughs> Just don't let them understand the word holiday means holy day and we're still pretty good when they say Happy Holiday. Um, how do we navigate a culture that seems and it sometimes feels like we're the only group you can vilify? I don't want to be polemic. I don't want to go out and carry banners and get in front of cameras and scream and yell like some people do. But I want to enjoy the privileges and freedoms we have to open this book and to sing the songs we just sang and to not fear the government or anybody else telling me what I can or can't do when it comes to my faith in Christ. Seems like that's why this country was founded. Could change. Christmas is, is a complicated time. Because we're, we're driven by culture, by consumerism, by materialism, by children and grandchildren, by traditions, by expectations of what this season is supposed to be like. And some of us, it's a hard time. Some it's very difficult because of strange, strained relationships, broken families, lost loved ones, geographic separation, on and on we could go. For some, Christmas is a very difficult time. For others, it's it's like crack cocaine. We can't get enough of it, you know? It's just this narcotic, this drug that we just keep on decorating and consuming and buying and the planning and looking forward to the comfort foods and what means Christmas to you or me. How do we navigate it all? We've been during this season trying to focus on the time of Christmas, the time of Christ's birth, the timing of God entering through Mary, the virgin, fully God, fully man, Jesus being born. 
And we've chosen some different passages. I've chosen to use some of Paul's Christmas sections, if you will. And I would like to use another one today out of Colossians chapter 1. I invite you to stand and we will read together as Paul instructed, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. So let's read well this section of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. We can read from the screen um, and read the same version together. Would you read in unison, read with me? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, were the things on earth or things in heaven. You can be seated. This is very likely a hymn in the first century. Verses 13 and 14 speak of Christ's rescuing us and transferring us to the kingdom of God. We're being rescued from our sin, from a world of sin, and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have this redemption. And the hymn we've just read has at least seven, and I want to point out seven unique characteristics about our Christ. Seven unique characteristics. I'll repeat them many times for the super godly who take notes and refer later. Uh, So you'll have many chances to catch them all. So don't fret or be anxious if you don't get them the first time. The first one is Christ is the image. The image of God. Image in our text is the word icon. Now we know a desktop icon or a shortcut to a program. But in the first century the term meant more of an impress or a die on a coin. So if you look at a quarter, a U.S. currency quarter, you have George Washington's impress on that coin. And that's the idea that there was an impression made on that coin, a die made the face of George on that coin. The word is an exact representation, a perfect manifestation in Jesus Christ. One author describes Jesus as the portrait of God. I like that, but it fails in many ways. He's not just a picture. He is the exact representation of God. Hebrews 1.3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. He's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Question, what is God like? Answer, look at Jesus Christ. What does God think? Answer, look at Jesus Christ. Study the words and works of Jesus and you will understand what God is like, what God thinks. Now, many years ago, we had the WWJD craze. 
Um, we had bangles and bracelets and hula hoops and uh, lanyards and key fobs and hats and visors and stress balls and you name it. We had WWJD stuff going everywhere. My wife wanted a uh, sterling silver WWJD bracelet, which she still has, by the way, and wears no longer, but still has it. I asked her, they said, you still have those? She goes, yeah, I'm going to look for it. She goes, I found it. I can't believe it. She goes, but I do have to polish it. So she polished it up so you can see that she had a WWJD bracelet. When these came out, I remember wishing it had been WWJT. What would Jesus think? Not just what he would do. It's a fine, novel thing. It's a good reminder. The media since has made great mockery of it against us. They still use it once in a while to make fun of us. It's fine. Doesn't bother me at all. Gets the name of Jesus out there. It's all good. But what does Jesus think? What does he do? What is he like? Uh, to understand this Christ, all we have to do is look at his words and his works. More importantly, to understand God, all we have to do is look at his words and his works of his son. In Romans 1.20, Christ is made the invisible visible. Listen carefully. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, the things we can't see, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, listen, and eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in similar fashion, in the case of the God, little g, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Same word, the icon of God, the exact representation of God. Christ, the invisible, has become visible for what God has done. He is the perfect image, the perfect nature of God. It was clearly seen, but it was invisible. When uh, we look at nature, sometimes we say we, we see God in nature. We don't want to be pantheistic and worship God through nature. You don't hug a tree or pray to a rock. But when you look at nature, you see evidence of a creator. Young man, when we were in the D.C. area, was one of those guys that, you know, we, we love him, but we also secretly hate him. He made a 4.0. This was before you could make 5.2 type GPAs, but he, he made a 4.0, and he got a full ride. He made perfect scores on the ACT and SAT. That's just wrong. Those people are ill. I'm sorry. You know, but he made a perfect score. He got a full ride to a very prestigious university. He went on to med school. He double majored in uh, pre-med and biological engineering. And uh, he came home for a break, and I ran into him one time. And, you know, people that are that smart, um, sometimes they intimidate us, and they're a little odd. You know, and in God's great sense of humor, he compensates. If you're that smart, you're weird, right? I mean, come on, come on. You know, it's, so sometimes it's better to be normal. But anyway, um, love this young man. And I said, I said, tell me about your experience here. What's it like? And he said, Michael, he said, the pre-med, they're, they're all evolutionary folks, but the biological engineering, many of the men and women who teach are Christians. And I was going, explain that to me. Now, you don't ask a really smart person a stupid question, but I did. And he goes, well, think about it. When you're in pre-med and med school, it's all comparative anatomy. 
It's all comparing to animals and how things function and respiratory systems. But when you're in engineering, it's design. It's how things work. It's how they got there. It's why they're the way they are. And he goes, so those people are looking through a presupposition of design. We talk about intelligent design. The big theology word is the ontological argument. Big word. You look at nature. You look at the stars. You look at the data the Hubble brings in and you go, wow, it keeps on going. We can't figure it out. Jesus Christ is the image of God and he has taken what was invisible and made it visible to those who can see who are not blinded. Number one, he's the image. Number two, he's the firstborn over creation, verse 15. Now this does not mean he was the first person ever created, which, for example, our friends who call themselves Jehovah's Witness would argue. This means that he has always existed. He is the preeminent. He has first place as the creator. He's always existed. He was there when Adam was made in the image of God. Talked many times. The Adam is a wordplay. The dirt was made into Adam. So God in Jesus Christ fashions a sandman and breathes the breath of life and he becomes an animate being. He's the image bearer of Christ. He's the image of God. In fact, John Francis Wade, 1740-ish, wrote a very wonderful Christmas song. We all love to sing, Oh, Come, Let Us Adore Him, the adoration, the advent of Jesus. Listen to one stanza. True God of true God, light from light eternal, lo, he shuns not the virgin's womb. He eternally existed, but he wasn't unwilling to be born a virgin. Lo, not he shuns the virgin's womb. Listen to this. Son of the Father, begotten, not created. He got it. Son of the Father, begotten. He wasn't created. He's always existed. And he entered time in a unique time, Galatians 4, 4, under the law, born of a virgin. To be the firstborn is, of course, to have special rank. It would be common for Judaism to understand the privilege of the firstborn, the rights that fall to the firstborn. Now, of course, you know, we, we want to be careful today in our politically correct world and self-esteem, worshiping culture and so forth and so on, but there's something about the firstborn. It doesn't matter if they're the compliant uh, person or the rebellious difficult one. There's just something about the firstborn, and they have a certain preeminence. A lot of it's because we learn how to parent and we do all the mistakes with the firstborn. So they're, you know, they got to live up to expectations none of their kids have to live up to. Um, my sister, who's eight years older than me, um, she's the firstborn. When my father was dying, Joanna was the one with all the information. Not Steve, who's the far smarter of the three of us. Not me. That wasn't even a consideration. Joanna got all the information, and he told Joanna how things were to be done. She's the firstborn, and she has a rank, and she did it very well and still takes care of mom very well. It's not just privilege, though. It's preeminence, preexisting. He's always existing. As I read in Psalm 89 as we began our service, I shall make him my firstborn. I shall, he's speaking about David, also about Christ. I will make him my firstborn. He's always existed. The highest of kings over heaven. The highest of the kings of the earth. So Christ, eternally existing, will humble himself to be born of a virgin, emptying himself to be born of a virgin, to become our Savior. 
He is the very being and very nature of God. Number one, he is the icon, the image of God. Number two, he's the firstborn over creation. Number three, he's the creator, verses 16 and 17. Now I want you to notice the prepositional phrases. There are four of them here. This is not complex grammar. It's easy to see. These are like little yellow flags as you read your Bible. You'll see by him, through him, for him, in him. By him, through him, for him, in him. Most of your translations, some will say in him, through him, for him, in him. But our preposition is just that, of, because, for, in, with. Those phrases carry us along in language, usually explaining, expanding something, won't bore you too much with the grammar. But I want to show you the four. By him, through him, for him, in him. Let's look at each one of them briefly as Paul explains Christ is the creator. First of all, by him all things were created. Notice the list. In the heavens and the earth. So that is the universe. Secondly, visible and invisible. The material and the immaterial. That's what we can't see. That's what we cannot see. That's what we can see. Thirdly, thrones, dominions, rulers and authorities. Now this one gets some intrigue because this has to do with the angelic spiritual realm that scripture teaches is there, but we don't have a lot of specific data on what's going on. We have a lot of information about angels, elect and evil, but the angelic realm is shrouded in mystery for good reason. But Paul here through God's spirit is telling us Christ is the creator. By him, he created that angelic realm. He created the thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. He has eternally existed. He existed before the angels existed, before these spiritual realms that we can't see. And he was the one who created them. Now, the Colossians were taken, if you read the book of Colossians, they were taken with the angelic spiritual realm. That was their hot topic. That was their popular thing. And you might remember, some of us are old enough to remember when the angels thing came through television and the Raphael angels were on shirts and coffee mugs and you could buy them in Hobby Lobby and Michaels and all the Raphael thing came back and then it all, now it's in garage sales and in basements. But, you know, these things come and go and we get very intrigued. We have shows about angels, touched by an angel and so forth. All this angelic intrigue for a period of time because we're interested in uh, what's going on in that spiritual realm that we can't see but that does exist. There's a, a, no, there are a number of people on television this time of year talking about near-death experiences. One that has been very interesting to me, and I've listened to him being interviewed a number of times. I've not read his book, nor will I, after the last interview, but he was dead for a period of time and comes and tells us everything's going to be fine. And he didn't believe in God, and now he does. And he's telling people his experience and to his great credit, I guess, making lots of money with his book, and so forth and so on. Um, as I listened to the last interview he gave, he is talking heresy. But the public is intrigued by this notion of a near-death experience. What happens? We all see the bright white light. Neuroscience has some good explanations for that. There is a kind person at the end of that white tunnel. Well, I, I don't even want to pretend to guess or hazard to guess what people are experiencing what I can tell you is not what this teaches. If you have not trusted in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, there is no good ending. Anything that teaches something different as he goes on to expound that everybody's going to be okay and euphemistically speaks about evil in gloss terms, he's missing the mark. He's teaching heresy. 
Put your thinking caps on, men and women, when people are selling snake oil. Just like you don't invest in a bad investment, you don't listen to bad theology. Put your biblical ears and eyes on when you listen and read these things. But we're intrigued by thrones and dominions and rulers and what's out there. What Paul and what I want you to see is Jesus created that realm. He's bigger than what we imagine. So while all the trappings of Christmas might distract us or even discourage us, I hope you'll remember who this Jesus is, that you'll see he's bigger than we have ever imagined as the firstborn of creation. And join us next time as we continue Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, the time of the firstborn. This is Michael Easley in Context. Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you do is